In this podcast, Dr. Sandra Chapman, Director of Equity and Community at Little Red Schoolhouse and Elizabeth Irwin High School, discusses children's development of difference and racial ethnic identity. Chapman offers parents and caregivers practical advice to help children know and love themselves. Oftentimes, I am invited to talk to faculty, um, board members, uh, administration, um, but the, and then obviously we know that that will trickle down into the student experience, um, but you all as parents are another huge connection to how our children, um, and as a parent I will join you in saying our children are being raised in today's society. So I'm going to scoot back so I can be in alignment so I'm not turning too far back to look at this side of the room, and I hope I'm not making too many rattling sounds for you all. Okay, all right. Um, so the plan for this morning is um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, really briefly, the stages of children's development of difference. You know, so how is it from infancy to about, I'll go up to about age 12 or so, are children developing a sense of awareness of differences? And it will be really brief because what I would like to do is um, share a framework that I learned from another organization and then have you go into um, some case scenarios, some, some stories that have happened um, from early childhood through eighth grade, I think is the oldest that I have, and working in small groups to sort of apply this, this uh, racial lens um, and racial language to how would you navigate that if this was your child or if you had overseen um, this experience. Um, so we'll start from that. The organization that I'm pulling from in terms of a really simple resource I learned is um, Raising Race Conscious Children. And they have great resources. Um, I highly recommend um, checking out their website. They have a, a number of articles and ways of encouraging us as parents as well as you know educators to raise the level of awareness around what it means to parent from a racial lens. So Raising Race Conscious Children is the, is the site. And their framework, I did a webinar with them, and their framework was name it, narrate it, complicate it. Really simple. Name it when kids are really, really young. Name racial terms. Use racial terms as often and whenever possible. Narrate it. Narrate what's happening in a story. Narrate what you might be seeing. Narrate a little bit more about what the child might be asking, especially when they get to the stage of um, naming the observations that they're making. And then as the child progresses, complicate the story. Talk a little bit about history um, so that they're seeing this layer in their own experiences in school and in the world and in their homes and in their home communities, um, how race enters into the narrative of their lives. And they can only see that when we as parents choose to use the racial lens that we have or that the world is operating under, and when we choose to use that as the frame through which we're going to raise our children. So infants, we know now, <coughs> research has shown that infants can see color. Um, and in fact, unless you are uh, medically labeled colorblind, no child is colorblind. That's an ideology that some people grow up with, uh, colorblind ideology. The assumption that if we don't talk about skin color and we don't talk about race, that we won't notice the differences. But in fact, the complete opposite is true. Nurture Shock is a great book. I forgot the author's name. Um, but Nurture Shock was a really great book. Uh, one of the chapters really exploded. And they have actually a short article about it, too. This notion that if we don't talk about race and don't name race um, for our children, that they won't see color, and they won't see difference, and they won't become biased. And that is absolutely not true. 
Um, so infants, they're also absorbing culture from such a young age. They're absorbing culture by the language that you're using at home, the people that you're bringing uh, to their uh, faces, um, the smells, right? What smells of what body odor smells like in that culture, what foods smell like in that culture. So from infancy, children are learning about culture. And by the time they're about six months, seven months, they begin to recognize familiar faces in their family and then unfamiliar faces. And if you have an infant at home, do some experimenting. Sort of, you know, introduce them to somebody who they've never met and see how they register with just facial cues, right? And how are they positioning their body? Are they intrigued because it's like, oh, familiar face, familiar uh, structure, or I'm not sure I understand what's happening with the facial features. And that could be skin color, that could be hair differences, um, it could be beard, no beard. Um, there was this interesting story I read many, many years ago of a child who had never been exposed to anybody with a beard, and the first time they, they saw somebody with a beard, they were frightened because they equated that with the dog that had just you know, snapped at them, right? So like unfamiliar things are um, certainly happening at this age. While increasing at the infancy stage, the, um, the number of diverse people that your child is exposed to um, is extremely important, and we'll get to one of the strategies and one of the reasons why. It doesn't unbias your child, right? Because the very next stage, the toddler to preschool stage, um, a, a woman whose work I follow, uh, Louise Sturman Sparks, she talks about children in that state, early stage, twos, threes, fours, five-year-olds, being in a pre-prejudicial stage. Pre-prejudicial meaning they are absorbing societal values despite the values that you have in your home. They are just taking in what society says. Um, they're taking in gender cues, racial cues, skin color cues, disability, ability cues. They're just taking in the information. At that age, they haven't quite formulated a, uh, uh, an opinion about differences but they're certainly taking in what society says about that. And that's where narrating it, so that second stage of that framework, is really important. When we begin to narrate what children are seeing or the questions that they're asking, um, we help to expand their understanding of the world so that they're not just taking in this information and then absorbing it as truth. Because it's just a few short years after age five or six that the things that they have absorbed, they have translated to the truth. Girls are weaker than boys. Um, uh, Dark-skinned people are not as, uh, um, I'm trying to think of a, 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 something that a young child may say, um, you know, can't do certain kinds of jobs. Um, a person with disabilities is unable, not able at all, just unable to do certain kinds of things and engage in certain kinds of activities. So they've taken these pre-prejudicial pre uh, notions and then move them into prejudicial notions later in their life. Um, so this pre-prejudicial stage, um, they're absorbing these biases about skin color, race, language, gender, and ability. They ask these why questions. I don't know if anybody here is raising a toddler, but you know about the why questions. Um, and many times they are associated by the ways in which they're observing the world. Why is that person's hair color that way or texture that way? Why is that person's skin that way? Why is that person's eyes shaped that way? Why is that person in a wheelchair? And they are asking questions whether it's children in their lives or adults in their lives. They want to know why is that the case? Now, oftentimes it's the folks who are children who are in the dominant identity that are asking questions about, the, about groups that are marginalized, right? So asking questions about other. 
And it doesn't mean that children who are in marginalized identities, so it's not like the child in the wheelchair is not asking questions about why is it, the, or not thinking about why is it that people use two feet if they have two feet to walk around and I don't. The way in which they're asking it is not like, oh, that seems so unusual for me that they're walking with two feet, why aren't they in a wheelchair? But you can imagine what's sort of happening is their experience of living in a wheelchair or, or navigating the world through a wheelchair um, is for already, in terms of what they've seen in society, books, TV, day-to-day -day life, who's navigating the world and what they've seen and how people navigate the world, is most people are not in a wheelchair. So it doesn't mean that somebody with a marginalized identity is not asking questions about why aren't they like me, but they've already, that's a really good indication that they've already absorbed what normal is, at least, and I use the normal in quotes because we know that there's nothing, no such thing as normal, but what they consider to be normalized culture. So it's not that a dark-skinned child isn't going to ask the question, why are those light-skinned kids with white skin or light skin? But mostly what it says is that what they're asking is, why am I, why do I have the skin that I have? Whereas a white child might be asking, why does that child have brown skin? It's not that a child with almond-shaped eyes, if they're Asian and they have almond-shaped eyes, is, are not asking questions about why are those eyes round? But what they might be asking is, why are my eyes almond-shaped and not round like others? So the, the why questions begin to happen at that toddler stage into the four, five, and six-year-old stage. Another interesting thing about children at that age is they, are in, um, they haven't reached object permanence. Right, or, or racial constancy. And object permanence, if you remember any of science classes from maybe high school or college, if you take uh, two balls of clay with the same amount of volume and you roll one ball of clay um, into a long uh, sort of snake, but they have the same amount of volume, we all know that they're the same amount of volume, that they haven't changed. But if you ask a child who hasn't reached object permanence, they will say, oh, the, the snake has, the, the, the long one has more clay in it. You could do the same experiment with a child with a glass of water, one that has a longer um, spout and one that's shorter, but they hold the same amount of water in it. If you put it in the longer uh, cup, they will say, well, that cup has more water in it because they just don't understand that two things of different shapes or sizes could be the same amount. That ob idea of object permanence was, has been used to help us understand as parents and educators um, children's development of difference. So it's not unusual for kids at this early stage, preschool and uh, toddlers and preschools um, who have not reached object permanence to think about their identities as fluid. Oh, I have long hair and so I'm a girl, even if they are uh, identify as a boy or bi are a biological boy. Um, I, ha I got a tan over the summer and now I'm a black person, right? Um, because their skin color changed, their skin color got darker and so without object permanence they don't understand the relationship between race, racial terms and skin color it's like, wait, no, I changed. My skin color changed, and so I must be a black person now. Or for a girl who has her hair cut, my thing, oh, I'm a boy now because they have short hair. Um, so that's going to connect a little bit to what I was saying before. The more exposure to diverse peoples um, of all kinds, with all kinds of hair, right, um, the more you can attach to that person. Well, remember so-and-so and uncle so-and-so and aunt so-and-so and grandma, and they all have short hair, and they identify in lots of different kinds of genders. Um, so that's one of the ways in which you narrate the story a little bit for a child who hasn't quite reached object permanence and they're making statements because of that. Once they've reached that object permanence, when they realize skin color doesn't change your ethnic identity, um, uh, unless one chooses to change their gender identity, that gender identity can be constant. 
um, then they have a better, uh, not a better, a different understanding of where they are. In, uh, you have a different understanding of where they are around their development, right? And then you can sort of move into that next stage of um, complicated. Uh, also, the narrating stage um, is a place where you want to introduce uh, new language that you may not have used during those early stages of their development. And for anybody who has a child who's already passed those stages that I've just talked about, it's never too late. <laughs> it's never too late to sort of start the conversation. And that's one of the things that you know, I've said to educators um, around the country that I've worked with. It is never too late to come back to a conversation with the child. In fact, that's one of the most amazing things you can teach your child is, you know, when I w we were talking the other day and I didn't answer that question or I, didn't, I said something, but I, I, I thought again about it. It teaches them that you can have multiple complex thoughts about these concepts about identity, that there's no one right answer, that there's no one right way to think about it, and that as you grow and change and are exposed to differences, so can your child, right? So always feel like you can come back to a conversation, even if it happened years ago. Remember that time when we were in the car and this thing happened? Do you remember that? And then narrate what happened? That's connected to, and then you can start to complicate it for your eight-year-old or 10-year-old. So I wanted to put a plug in for always coming back to um, racialized moments or, or, or tension around identity um, that you feel has been unresolved in your parenting experiences. So the last sort of thing is the complicated stage. And by complicated, this is where the stories of identity sort of become more, um, they're, they're more evolved, right? So your child has an understanding between age six and older that they are way more than just a daughter um, or just a son, right? And then they start to think about their relationships to their grandparents, to their aunts and uncles, to their siblings. And that idea alone, if you just even look at um, how they see themselves as a part of this multifaceted group of people is the same as what it does mean to be black. Whoa, that's so much more dense and complicated than just one narrative. There are black people who are Latinx. There are black people who are uh, from African descent. There are black people who are African. There are black people who have light skin who call themselves black. Like That's when you begin to sort of complicate this notion of terminology and um, as well uh, identities and the story of identity. So children as young as five um, can tell you what culture is. Um, ask them what the culture of the foot school is. Like, what are the values of the school? What are the values of your home? And they can sort of tell you what it is. And sometimes if, you're, if they're struggling, you can give them an example of something that's really outside the norm of your home culture or school culture or synagogue, church, temple culture. And they can say, oh, no, no, you're not supposed to do that in this place, right? So that gives you a sense that they're understanding already at a young age what culture is and what's kind of taboo or what's not allowed in culture. Um, they are beginning to understand uh, dominant identities and m marginalized identities and beginning at a really young age, five, six, or seven, to internalize in, um, inferiority and internalize superiority. And there's some sort of things that we can do to sort of stop that process. But I want to recognize um, that all children go through a stage of thinking that they are better than another group of people based on some kind of an identity and that's society imposing those values. I can almost 
guarantee without asking anybody here that those aren't your values for your home. You don't want your child growing up thinking they are inferior because of their identity or superior for their identity. And so what we actively do to mitigate that is what's going to help them to push that out of, out of their own internalized system um, and then also to put into place where those things are coming from. So when they make those statements about different groups of people that they do not belong to, you can call back or recall um, conversations you've had, um, moments in history. Again, this is your six, seven, eight, nine-year-old who's really able to take in this historical perspective of the formulation of identities, how histories have always, uh, in our history we've always had clashes of identity, um, what one group has done to another group, and what one group is constantly trying to become more resilient about the you know, imposition of those biases. Um, so telling those stories is really important. Um, because of the, their awareness of dominant identities and marginalized identities, it's not unusual for kids at this age to want to keep away from their surroundings any, signi any signifier of a marginalized identity. So this might be you have a, a language at home that's the home language, that's your country of origin, that is not English, and you might start to hear your child say, don't speak that in school, right? Um, or they might resist, even though they've been raised to speak a particular language, they may start resisting that and speaking to you in English. Um, as somebody who is uh, uh, married to somebody who speaks only Spanish to her child, um, I advocate for you to continue with that because they'll get out of that stage, right? But recognize that that is sort of those moments of that's not the norm in this place, whether it's school, home, other sort of communities. And what you do to um, help them resist that is going to be really important. And to broaden their notion that our language is important, our language is beautiful, our language is, is um, needed to diversify people's experiences, our language is important to our country of origin. And that line, that I, those sentences I just said, could also be for other kinds of identities, whether it's race or culture or foods or gender and, um, and the like. Um, <clears throat> Between seven or eight, and this varies for child by child, it could be younger for some and slightly a little older for others, they have reached object permanence or identity constancy. Um, so they are able to then have um, sense of their identity, racial terms, uh, cultural terms, language are something that they are not only are consistent in understanding that that belongs to who they are, they're also at a stage between seven and eight of really being interested in learning more. They want to know more about themselves as a cultural being and they want to know more about others. Um, so the more that you can expose them to their own cultural background, that's going to be really important. Um, I often encourage families, and I, I have worked in predominantly white schools since, well, this is the, my 29th year, so a long, long time. Um, and do consulting work in our independent school systems for the most part and most of those predominantly white schools. And I am often um, asked questions, so I'll sort of put it out there in case it's in anybody's mind. Um, what do we do if we are a white family? What does that mean to in encourage our child to embrace their culture? And that can mean so many different things, because we don't want white children to be raised to think they're just normal, right? Or just American, or just human, right? Because that also is, to, is 
another form of internalized superiority. Just normal means I'm like everybody else that's not like me. And you don't want that to be the way in which they see themselves, right? So looking at your ethnic roots, talking about your cultural roots, talking about your religious roots, talking about those family members who have resisted bias, whether it was the female Jewish grandmother who went to college during a time when that wasn't expected, or the Irish American who, you know, came, who immigrated, you know, at some point in your ancestry. And of course, if you don't have that information, that's okay too. Um, you can f talk about what is it that we are as a family, who, who, how do we want to identify. Um, and this is also a really important stage to help children know the difference between their nationality, their citizenship, their race, their country, um, uh, uh, their race and their ethnicity. That, those terms are very confusing for kids. And if they're not hearing them frequently, they will overlap or confuse one for another. So when you ask a, a young you know, seven, eight-year-old, where are you from? Or what's your family background? They say, well, we're American. It's like, well, that, that's great. And, you know, I'm American too, and that's what, something that we share. We're both from America, and that makes us American. We have American citizenship, if that's the, the case. Um, but getting deeper into those stories of, of what's your, you know, your family lineage or your, where your family is from is going to be really important, particularly for white students, because they generally have a notion of not being of a culture. Um, for many African-American uh, children, um, not knowing their country of origin can also be um, uh, problematic, particularly because of what enslavement of African people did to that heritage. And so that becomes also a real big challenge for the African-American child when they're trying to figure out, but where from Africa are we from? And you might not have the answers to that. That's a great moment to talk about a little bit about those seedlings around why you don't have that information so that the first time they hear about enslavement, it's not the first time that they're processing it for themselves. I'm throwing so much at you right now, so I hope you're with me, I hope you're with me. Okay, um, uh, that's why I keep going back to my notes, because I know that I don't have all those things in my notes, because <laughs> my mind is sort of in a lot of places, which is good. Um, they are absolutely at this stage, so this is like your first, second, third grader, who are seeking personal and group identity. Personal identity comes from how you nourish them at home and what they learn about themselves. Um, but in order to have a fully formed idea about their identity, their racial identity in particular, they have to have a group reference. It has to be, they have to reference a group that, to which they belong. And when they are um, connecting their personal identity to their group identity and seeing the heroes and the sheroes and the legends and the, the, their ancestors from that um, asset model, not the deficit model, it helps to build a, a more nourishing sense of self as opposed to, again, that internalized inferiority or that, that you know, um, sense of I belong to a marginalized group. It's one of the reasons why I don't use the term minority when speaking to people of color or about people of color. Um, it already is a deficit mentality to think of a group of people as a minority. Now, if they are in the numeric minority, then that's when I use it. I will talk about it in terms of numbers only, but I'm constantly pushing up against a mindset that might be imposed on adults and on children that you are minor, right? So I work really hard not to use that term. Um, so if uninterrupted, the pre-prejudicial thoughts um, from those early stages can move into prejudice between ages 9 or 10. Again, it depends on your child, their exposure, what you're, um, how you're raising them, what kinds of conversations you're having, and who, who's in their surroundings. But uninterrupted, 
between ages 9 and 10, a child's pre-prejudicial stages, so what they've absorbed, becomes their belief system, right? It becomes what they believe to be true. And some researchers say, uh, Judith Katz says, that sometimes it's even harder to change a child's mind past pre-adolescence into adolescence about those differences if they've never been exposed to it, even when there's concrete evidence in front of them, right? So even if they have a, a Muslim doctor or a, a female black dentist, even with those people in their lives, they may still have very negative thoughts about groups of people. Um, again, and sometimes this, is, this information or this research sort of contradicts itself. On the one hand, exposing your child to different groups of people is extremely important. And then on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily um, make your child unbiased. However, when you either hear or you as a family witness or your child shares a story of bias against a group of people, you have a reference point. You have a person in your life that means something to your child and you can refer to that child or that, to that person rather um, as to individualize the story, which actually also builds into the complicated stage. So for example, um, my child, my son, he's a light skin, um, he's half, he's part Lithuanian, part Russian, part Dominican, part Puerto Rican. He's got skin lighter than mine. He's being raised in a Latino household. Um, he's been studying Mandarin, so he doesn't know Spanish, right? Like, just talk about complicated. Um, and so when he was about four, he had action figures that I called dolls, um, just to push up against that as well. And so, you know, he was also radicalizing the train station. I was like, where did my dolls go, mama? And where's my, and I'd pull out an action figure and you'd see the facial reactions like, huh? Um, that's kind of the point I am. And so there he is on the train uh, with a dark skin action figure and a light skin action figure. And they're fighting because that's what he has seen on TV and, and, and what he's hearing at school about what these characters do. And then I started to pay closer attention, and the dark-skinned one was the bad one. And I hear him sort of narrating the story in his own world, but clearly it was the dark-skinned character that was the bad one. And so I sort of stopped the game, and I said, tell me why you think this is the bad one. Well, that's, how the, that's what happens on TV. And he named three different storylines right, that I had seen with him. You know, remember when? And, and so I was able to affirm, yes, you, you learned that from TV. Um, and then I said, well, what about Uncle Junius? He's got dark skin like this character. And how about, the, and then I just named like four or five people, some men, some women that he knew who were black, who dark skin, Dominicans. And I said, what about those people? Are they bad? No, 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 no. So again, beginning to sort of narrate the situation, complicated a little bit. And even though in his little world, he was exposed to so much racial diversity, skin color diversity, religious diversity, ethnic diversity, he was absorbing and playing out the narrative that dark is bad and white is good or light is good. And so having those people in your life, particularly for that seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old who is um, beginning to fall into those stereotypes and believe the biases can help you to uh, negate that or to, to upend that, if anything. A um, couple of final thoughts. So in addition to explicit discussions about your family's values of acceptance, and please show, don't tell. Don't just tell your child, but you have to model for them what that acceptance actually looks like. Um, between ages 10 and 12, children seek more clarity about the biases and prejudice that they see, and certainly about the ones that they experience. And so all of this sort of pre-work 
that we as parents must do, that we as educators must do to counter the societal biases that our children are just naturally going to pick up, even when we don't want them to. They're going to do it because they are, they are citizens of the world and they absorb what society says is the truth, even against what we say. By the time they get old enough to start to navigate the world in different ways, meaning they're, um, they're watching things that you might not know they're watching. They're on their computers navigating uh, websites in, in sites that you may not know. They are um, you know, at some point traveling on their own. And I know traveling on your own in this community is different than in New York City where kids are sort of hopping on the train and going to Brooklyn, Queens, you know, Staten Island, the Bronx, Harlem, and downtown Manhattan. When they, they're going to experience bias differently than when they are sort of under your, your care. Um, and you get to protect a little bit about what they are exposed to when they are really young. And so what we are trying to do, right, as parents is to um, prepare our children to navigate the world and to navigate it by seeing the bias, naming it, talking about it, processing it, and then strategizing about what to do the next time that comes, comes across their plate. Um, that part, which you're going to do in a little moment with these case scenarios, is as important for our children to do. They need to be ex uh, exposed to scenarios that maybe they haven't come up with, or they haven't talked about, or they haven't experienced, so that you can prepare them for the case that it does. And that gets to um, uh, two things I wanted to say about that. Um, Harris Britt, I'm forgetting her first name, but uh, a woman wrote this article about uh, how do we racially socialize children? And the, her article is specifically about black African-American families and how do black African-American families racialize their children? And that can be generalized to you know, other groups of people of color. So there's one way in which family, in her research she found, one way in which families socialize children is by preparing them for bias, right? You know, uh, if you walk down this street, you might encounter that store or that police officer or that neighbor and stay away from that and, you know, this is why. Remember when this racialized moment happened, right? Preparing them for what might happen and that's something that parents of color might do with their children. Um, other parents were uplifting their children with uh, positive images and stories of pride, right? And so really uplifting racial pride in their homes. What she found is that it was a balance of the two that was really important. So when families were um, only preparing their children for racism, right, preparing them for bias, children were left feeling hopeless, right? Like, oh my gosh, this world is so scary. <laughs> There's, uh, what am I supposed to do? I'm so helpless, which in turn could lead to internalized inferiority. There's nothing I can do. I'm going to be a victim of bias. So preparing children for bias alone is not advised. But not having it, meaning only preparing them for racial pride and being proud of your, your ancestry, is also not healthy if it's, out, if it's void of conversations about bias because then when bias does happen, because it's inevitable, it will, the child has no strategies for navigating it. What they begin to do is internalize the racism because they feel like nobody told me this was going to happen. Oh, it must be about me. I must not have dressed properly. I must not have said the right things. I must not have presented myself in the way that I should have. And they do begin to internalize that. So balancing that is really important. Racial, racial awareness of racial differences and, and racial discrimination and how to navigate that, coupled with racial pride, rah, 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 be proud of your people. You know? 
Um, and the balance of the two is really what led to children feeling good about themselves. Recognizing when racism was operating and not internalizing that because they had a reference point for knowing that it was going to happen. And also, that's not my history. That's not really what my family wants me to know about my cultural group, ethnic group, and or racial group. The thing that I also took away from Harris Britt's work is the amount of work that parents of color are doing to prepare their children for the world. What we need and want from our white parents is to do that same level of, of racial parenting to prepare white children for the world. White children should have a sense of how racism is going to hit them as white children, how it's hitting them as a white family, um, how to see racism, to stand up against it. And so that there's not a um, one way of operating for families of color that should not also be operating for white families as well. OK, that was a lot, a lot of just me talking. But it's been captured, and I know you can review it if you'd like. <laughs> There's also an article that I have shared with Carol um, that really goes into some of these things in more depth, again, from infancy to young adulthood. What is the development of difference? So I highly recommend reviewing that. But let's hear any, before we move to some scenarios, what are some questions and thoughts that you might be having at this, at this point? Yeah, one, two. OK. Right. Um, because that's what makes it so problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. That's uh, thank you. That's a really good question because one of the things that we have to be clear with ourselves as adults and with children is the definition of racism, and that racism is a and how it operates is different than um, prejudice and different than discrimination. All of us can discriminate. Every one of us can discriminate against another group of people, right? We can make decisions from an individual, uh, on an individual level of who we want to let in or not let in into our lives, or, and, and we could use bias as the reason why. E explicit bias. Implicit bias is a whole other thing, and I won't get into that now. It's a whole other workshop. But explicitly, we could have biases about different groups of people, and this is people of color against other people of color, people of color against white people, white people against people of color. Racism is not something that we all hold, meaning uh, we all have the power to do. Racism is power plus privilege, which is why we have to look and understand that racism is individual, institutional, and systemic. And because it's greater than at the individual level, racism is only what, what, what happens what, that white people can do to people of color. And helping children understand that is actually, I think, extremely healthy and important without imposing a level of shame, blame, or guilt for a white child. And that is the hard work of white parents, right? So while parents of color are like, how do I uplift you and then prepare you for white parents? It's how do I help you understand how racism works, how our generation of peoples, how our ancestors were um, you know, uh, experiencing or complicit with racism so that you can see when it's operating without developing a sense of shame about who you are as a white child. And that's, that's really challenging, but also really important for folks, to, for kids at a certain age, right? This is not the four-year-old conversation, <laughs> you know, but certainly um, by upper elementary, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, um, they're understanding power in, the, in relation to some of the things that they're reading about and curriculum work um, 
and uh, so that it makes sense to then be able to do incorporate those conversations at the home level as well. <laughs> um, and it may be a good segue. So um, would you, or could you articulate a distinction between um, superiority that, and, and now speaking as a, a, a Caucasian male, um, which is a bad thing, mm -hmm. to self-confidence, uh. which is a good thing. And many of us are parents of uh, middle schoolers. Mm -hmm. And oh boy, that's a touchy time for self-confidence. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Sure. And in fact, um, I think what, what I'll do is I'll bring in some real tension happening in our middle school at, our, at, at LREI. Um, some real tension. And this is tension that's happening in our country as well. So we are actively trying to engage our student body in, well, activism is sort of a part of our school values, and we do lots of things around activism. And our eighth grade students, uh, their curriculum is choosing to participate, right? So they start with the Little Rock Nine and then do a civil rights unit. And now they have, uh, since December, the eighth grade students have been in small groups working on a social justice cause that's important to them, right? So they start with racism, understanding and unpacking racism and its impact on our country and the civil rights movement. And then they move into, well, what's a cause that's relevant to your life as a, as a youth? Um, so one group of girls have been working on really thinking about sexism and feminism and how those um, uh, issues relate to their lives and how to dismantle sexism and did a presentation on toxic masculinity. And they asked a group of high school boys who had just done a workshop on toxic masculinity to come and share their presentation to the entire middle school, fifth through eighth grade. And we're at a place right now where we want to help our young white boys understand, and boys in general actually, all boys understand what toxic masculinity is, but developmentally they're struggling because I think how they're translating this is, I am masculine so I am toxic, is that what you're saying to me? And thus there's the shame, right? So we're now in a place where there's lots of emails that I was doing on the train, making sure that I'm a part of conversations to sort of un upend the, the shame that I think we, the, the girls did not do anything wrong, right? They, they had a passion, they wanted to show this Gillette video that's very popular now, um, and, uh, and they went with what was right for them, and they felt really good and talk, talk about a sense of pride and a sense of you know, dismantling inferiority for themselves. And because of their age, they're eighth graders, they, they were not expecting the impact, and as a community, we were not expecting the impact to be a small group of boys, not all the boys, but like two, three boys, who are really resisting this notion of toxic masculinity because I, I think that it's raising for them issues of, you don't like me because I'm a boy. You think I'm toxic because I'm a boy. You think everything about me is toxic because I'm a boy. And that is not what we want our, our boys to develop, right? So, th so that is the complicated, right? These are eighth grade kids who have been knee deep in a social justice unit who are absolutely dismantling, making sense of, demystifying, talking about deconstructing race in our country and how race is connected to gender and all these other identities. And so I have no doubt, I have lots of faith that we'll get to a place where we can help those boys move away from what they feel is the shame of what it means to be a boy and understand and connect it more to their behavior. 
one of the exercises I recommended is have those boys make a list of all the things that they appreciate about, appreciate about the, the women in their lives. Right? Not the girls, because you know, they're eighth graders, but about the women in their lives. You know, what do they value about those women? What do they value about the men in their lives? What have they learned from the men? How did they learn from the men how to be bo the boys that they are? And really connected more to behaviors. And I can guarantee those boys will get to a place where they can say, oh, you just want me to be like the men I know. You want me to value the things that my family wants me to value. You just don't want me to emulate you know, this other thing that is just not even what I've learned about what it means to be a boy as I'm going to be a man. But because the girls started with the conversation of toxic masculinity, they just were so put off. Right? So I, you know, watch the Gillette ad, decompress it by, with the other adults in your life, watch it with your at middle school child, but help them make sense of it in, with multiple lenses. Because I think that the story of, of what's happening in our country is I, I was talking to a ninth grader on, on Wednesday, and he said, who had gone through the eighth grade social justice unit the year before, and he said, I, I'm all for justice. This is him. He's a white, white Jewish boy. I'm all for justice. I get it. I'm all for justice. And I want to uplift girls. But why do we have to squash the boys? And I'll never forget this image that he just did, right? Like, he's right. To, to raise black lives doesn't mean we, dis we, we, we make white people feel bad about who they are. We just want white people to take responsibility. To raise you know, cisgender, uh, transgender people doesn't mean that cisgender people have to you know, no longer exist or talk. We just have to make sure cisgender people are understanding the plight of transgender people. So I think that how we talk about activism within our parenting can also have an impact on um, replicating some of this negativity and shame. Thank you. One more before we transition to, let me double check time. Yeah, before we transition to some case studies. Yeah. I sort of just wanted to touch on the idea that, that what I'm getting most like through a lot of what you talk about is, which is just a big part of this school, is, is raising empathy in your kids mm -hmm. and being empathic. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned <clears throat> in the work that I've done is that there's a big disconnect between teaching a child empathy and then realizing that either the teacher or the parent in their life isn't totally aware of what empathy is. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and so how much of it is teaching everyone about empathy in order to have your kids have right. the appropriate amount of empathy to understand that yes. dynamic? There is a direct link, actually, between empathy and <coughs> racial parenting, gendered lens on their parenting, ability lens on our parenting. Um, but there's also just a couple of nuances that create sort of some different narratives or different frameworks, right? So empathy alone will not prepare our children to dismantle racism or sexism or homophobia or transphobia. But empathy is a huge link into helping them understand the plight of another person and why that matter, should matter to them in terms of their relationships with those people, what equity, there's this great exercise I do, I'm about to run back to the LREI and do this with our fifth graders. We've been talking about these issues in our, one of their weekly classes. And the exercise is called, from this book, um, Everybody Wins, right? So it's a scenario where one child is excluded because of some bi systemic bias, and the kids have to work through um, how do we create the situ situation so that everybody actually wins, not so that um, only that child who's being discriminated against wins or gets what they need, but that everybody benefits, right? And that's a huge stretch for our, our, our middle school kids to think about engaging in um, understanding, empathy, awareness, activism, 
benefits you if you have a dominant identity. Benefits you because you have deeper relationships with people from marginalized identity, with marginalized identities. You have a better cultural understanding. It's what we call cultural, archi uh, cultural competency. You're growing your child's cultural competency to navigate different sort of situations. Um, there's this um, uh, resource that we use called Narrative 4 which is about building empathy about people from different groups, right? So Narrative 4, you can Google them. They have great videos and great resources. And it's a great way to sort of get kids and adults to share stories with a group of people who are different than they are. Um, and it raises empathy. It builds empathy, rather. Um, but empathy alone isn't going to address the systemic issues that are going on. Because on the one hand, while somebody with a dominant identity should have, we want them to have empathy for somebody with a marginalized identity. Empathy alone isn't going to help the child with the marginalized identity not internalize that stuff and make it about, make them feel like, oh, it's about me. It's because I'm girl, dark skin, have two moms, or whatever the story is about their identity. So yes and more <laughs> is my answer to that. Yes, real quickly. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So much that we should just come back for that whole conversation. But yes, so, so much. Um, so I would highly recommend the work by um, Maria P.P. Root. She is the scholar on biracial, multiracial identity development. And she created the, um, the, the Mixed Race People's Bill of Rights. She created a list of experiences. And one of the, go the, the takeaways that I have taken from this, raising two children who are biracial, is the, child, the child's phenotype, language, cultural experiences at home, and who, who is of which identity at home, all of that impacts how the child feels about themselves. That's one piece. The other piece is, in terms of the uh, biracial, multiracial Bill of Rights and the multiracial, biracial develop, uh, identity development, children need to be able to choose at any moment. So you might have a child who says, um, and adults who say, who are maybe half Asian and half black, um, they might want to go to the black student union because that's really important to them and never go to the Asian group. And then at some point say, I want to go to the Asian group. And they should absolutely be allowed to, even if they only go once, right? Multiracial, biracial children need to navigate both or all of their identities at a, during a time when other people who are monocultural or monoracial have to navigate just one. So we need to allow the space in our communities for them to be able to flow in and out. A much, much harder thing, I was just at a school in, um, in the Bronx, and most, most of their kids are black, African-American, black Caribbean, uh, uh, Caribbean, like black Jamaican, black Dominican, black uh, Trinidadian, um, uh, light-skinned Latinos, and then a handful of Asian, a handful of white students. And the amount of tension around the multi, the uh, Latino children who are, and the Latino adults who are saying, I'm African and I, I'm black and I'm Latinx, I'm Dominican and I'm um, black and not being accepted into the, either of those worlds has been really challenging for the adults as well as for the students. So yeah, lots of, I can share some 
really great resources. My website, and I did bring business cards, um, my website has um, racial identity models as well as other resources for parents as well. Foot Podcasts are a production of The Foot School, an independent school for grades K-9 located in New Haven, Connecticut. Visit us online at footschool.org.